Good to be together, guys. If you could please open a Bible to Luke chapter 13. Uh, that's where we're going to be tonight. Uh, Luke is the third book in the New Testament, so if you could flip there and keep it open in front of you. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 21. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase, the best things come to those who wait. You've probably heard that before, I'm guessing, right? Never heard that? All right, you heard it now, right? The best thing comes to those who wait. So the saying goes... Um, and, and the thing is about that is the people who've actually gotten the thing that they've been waiting for can hear that phrase and go, yes, that's so true. The best things come to those who wait because they've gotten it. But while you're in the process of waiting, it doesn't feel like it, does it? Right? Waiting is, is really difficult. It's really hard. And we live in an instant society where we're constantly developing technologies that are getting things to us more quickly so that we don't have to wait as much. I mean, this is what we hope for. And it's really affecting a lot of things, uh, to the point that even last summer I moved into our, our new home and uh, I went over and to use our refrigerator for the first time, I grabbed a cup, I went and got some water out of the little spigot that's in your fridge or a lot of our fridges, and I went to press the ice and no ice came out. And I learned that our ice machine, automatic ice machine, was broken. And I'm kind of, I guess, an idiot because I, I remember looking at my wife saying, we've got to get a new fridge, right? Like this thing like doesn't work. Like how are we going to have ice? We need ice, especially on a day like today. We need, we need ice. And she's like, do you remember, you know, when we were first married and we had those plastic things, you know, that you pour water in and you put in the free- freezer and then it freezes and you have to loosen it and dump it out. And I was like, oh, yeah, they make those plastic ice trays, right? Like I completely had forgotten that there was a whole different way that we used to make ice. Why? Because I become so accustomed to this instant society. But not all things that are instant are better. Uh, even last uh, spring break, um, my family and I got away just for a couple of days to bend, and on top of our bucket list was to take our children to the last blockbuster, right? You know, the last blockbuster in Bend. Have you been there yet? You've got to go, okay? Uh, it's such a nostalgic thing for me. You walk in, the smells are just wonderful. It transports you in time. I worked there in high school for like a year, and we were like, you know, we got to show our kids what good the good life is, you know, where you, you go and you walk around for an hour and debate what movies are we going to watch tonight. It's a part of the whole experience. And I think my kids were just trying to be nice to me because they were like, yeah, this is pretty cool, you know. But at the end of the day, I don't think they thought... It was that great, right? Blockbuster is yet even another relic gone in an instant society. And in an instant society that we live in, it's easy to spot that a virtue that most of us, if not all of us, lack is patience. It's patience. I mean, I'm not going to make you raise your hand right now, but if I asked you to raise your hand if you are a patient person, I can't imagine that anybody's hand would really go up. And if your hand did go up, we'd all go, well, do you have the virtue of humility? You know, that kind of idea, right? But because all of us, we lack patience in our lives. Yet we are told that when we come to faith in Christ, right, that he sends the Holy Spirit to take up residence in our lives. And we are told in places like Galatians that the fruit that comes from his spirit are things like love and joy and peace and patience. That that tells us something significant about God, that God is patient. That God is a patient God. And God's patience is on full display in our passage tonight. And the issues that we have with God's patience is that a lot of us, we are prone to abuse his patience. 
aren't we? We are prone to misunderstand his patience. And in the work that he does in our lives, we are prone to be frustrated by his patience. But that's what we see tonight. And we see it in the images that Jesus gives us of these two different trees. We see a fig tree and we see a mustard tree. And in this fig tree, it sort of bookends verses 1 through 9. And in this fig tree, we see the patience of God in our repentance. In our repentance. We sang about that as we began our service. Our need to repent, right? To come to Christ. We see that in verses 1 through 9. And in this mustard tree, we see down at the end of our passage, what we're seeing here is the patience of God in our growth. In our growth. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read the section. We're going to talk about it. Then I'll read the next section. And then we'll talk through that together. So first, let's look in verses 1 through 9 at this fig tree and the patience of God in our repentance. Verse 1, this is what it says. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. What, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. You can cut it down. We live in a uh, news-saturated world. Most often the news that we are saturated with, though, is, is not good news. Right? It's what can, keeps us coming back. Maybe at the end there's some like heartwarming piece you know, about something going on and, and it kind of wrinkles us in again. But, but often the news uh, that we're bombarded with is news about death, right? And particularly sudden death, tragic death. I mean, even an example is a week ago, my parents live in Arvada, just in the northwest suburb of Denver, and I called them to check in on how they're doing, and they were just talking about how their whole community is shook because a police officer had just been shot and killed that day and another citizen who was just trying to help, and even the gunman took his own life. So... These unspeakable things happen. It, it shakes up a whole community. And the fact that I even said that, and most of us would go, yeah, that happens a lot, right? We, we hear about these things all the time, right? And so when unspeakable things like this happen, how should we think about that? How should we think about that? Well, that's what's interesting because that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is speaking into our very world, a world where death can come suddenly. So how should we respond? Well, in verse 1, we see this very thing. We see the crowd that raises this kind of topic to Jesus. They tell him about this instance with the Galileans and Pilate. And you can almost hear them being like, Jesus, you're a Galilean, right? He was from Nazareth, a village in Galilee, right? And so they told him about this instance. This is apparently a recent incident where the Galileans were put to death, right? As they were in the process of or preparing to offer their sacrifices. Now, all the specifics of what happened in this event are not in our text, but it's likely that these are Galilean pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for Passover to make their sacrifices, and Pilate, who's the Roman governor at the time, killed them. 
killed them. Now, in raising this event to Jesus, they're hoping that he will comment on it, right? Give him a hot take or something. Well, what would he say? How would he respond to this current event? Well, look in verse 2. Jesus gives a question. Basically, was the death of these people God's judgment on their sinfulness? That's his question. Basically, were they killed because of sin in their lives? And what does Jesus answer that to them? Verse 3 says what? No. He rejects that view, which would have been many of the people's view. Then Jesus brings up another situation in verse 4. They don't even solicit this one. Evidently, a tower had collapsed in Siloam. There was this reservoir there in the city, so there was this huge tower there, and somehow the tower had fallen, and 18 people had suddenly been killed. What about them? Were they worse people than we are? That's what Jesus' question is. Was their sudden death a judgment from God? The question basically is, how does our theology play out in the real world? And Jesus answers again, no, that's not the reason why this happened. So Jesus gives us a lot of help here as we think about life and death in this world. Jesus has the same answer to each. No, that's, that's not the reason this happened. It wasn't because of their sin especially, right? See, people in this day, they would often think that stuff like this happened because of sin in that person's life or maybe because of some sin in a family member's life. So imagine if you believed that, that, that how devastating that would be for you. If a family member suddenly died, you, you might think, so was it, was it my sin that caused that in their life? Were they doing something that, that was, just wasn't right in the eyes of God? And Jesus is saying that's not the case. And if you think about it, actually some of us think about this or view the world this way today. Some people think that if they do good things, then good things are going to happen to them. Right? And so if you're doing good and good stuff's happening, you're like, well, it's because I'm doing good things, and so God's going to be good to me. Right? God's merely reacting to me all the time. But if on the other hand, if I do bad things and something horrible happens to me, that means that it was because I was doing bad things. It was because of some sin in my life. And so even some Christians, you guys, think this way, even if it's subtle. But it's not true, Jesus is saying. I think the most prominent line of faulty reasoning for some of us maybe, or even people in our city today, is that if someone tragically and suddenly dies, people will say, how horrible that person was innocent. We say, well, they didn't deserve to die like that. And so the Tower of Siloam falls, 18 people die, and we think they were innocent. But do you see what happens there? If anything, people might begin to think, well, if there is a God, and God lets something like this tragedy happen, then maybe it's God himself who has sinned. Maybe God sinned. Because this person we think is innocent. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, writes a really classic, famous book. I couldn't recommend it to you more highly. He writes a book about suffering and how we should understand that in a book called How Long, O Lord. And this is what he, he writes in that book. He says, it is a mark of our lostness that we invert these two things. We think we deserve the times of blessing and prosperity and that the times of war and disaster are not only unfair, but come perilously close to calling into question God's goodness or his power even perhaps his very existence. Jesus simply does not see it that way. If we are to adopt his mind, we have some fundamental realignments to make in our assessment of ourselves. So just think about how does Jesus want us to think? Well, he doesn't simply stop at no. Do you notice this? He gives the same response in verses 3 and 5. What does he say? Look down. What does he say? 
But unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. So Jesus basically wants us to take these moments and he wants to focus us elsewhere. Not just in the theoretical, but he's he's speaking to everyone here listening, even to you and me in this room, right? Jesus is making the case that these people did not die because they were especially sinful. But he wants all of us to know that because of sin, all of us will die. Because of sin, all of us will die. So it's not because of their sin, but because of sin in this world. All of us will die. Jesus consistently holds out that every human being, all of us, are sinners, right? We, we all will sin. We all will die because we've sinned. A sinner meaning we all do things that do not line up with God's will, that do not line up with God's design for our lives, that, that He is our creator and that He made us. And in response to Him making us, we've said, I'm okay. I want to do what I want to do. I don't need you, God. I don't care as much what you think about how I should live my life unless it lines up with what I already want to do. This is, this is sin. Right? It's, it's us looking at our creator and saying, no, I don't want to live according to what your will is. Right? So no one is fully innocent. No one is perfectly good. And because there are no truly innocent people, this is why the question, why do bad things happen to good people, which was a really famous book a few decades ago, but that question isn't a very helpful or true question. Because none of us down to our core are truly innocent, are truly good. So a better question would be, why does anything good at all happen to bad people like us? Right? That's the question that, that Jesus wants us to be thinking about. See, the fact is that lots of good happens to us. Lots of gracious things happen to us. We typically don't get what we deserve. And that's a gracious thing. God is, is common in his grace for all. So so how then should we think about tragedy and sudden death in our world? Well, Jesus here wants to think about those tragedies and realize that all of us will die and we don't know when we will die. We shouldn't think we are the exception to the rule. And this is exactly what he zeroes in on here. He uses these two instances of tragedy as a sort of wake-up call for us. But the wake-up call is not just that we are going to die. The wake-up call is that what is beyond death, right? Because Jesus points out not just our death, but our perishing. Do you notice that? He's talking about us standing before God in our perishing and being judged for how we've lived our lives. And so twice he says, unless you repent, you also likewise will perish. So he says, you see those things happening, those horrible things. I don't need to figure out exactly why it happened, but Jesus wants me to think about those things, think of my own mortality, and then to repent. This is tough for us. Let's just be honest. This is tough for us. I'm sure uh, even if you don't like poetry, uh, you've probably heard of uh, W.E. Henley's famous poem that he wrote at the turn uh, of the 20th century. And it reads this way. It, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You heard that before? Famous poem. Right? Pretty famous. What's behind it? When he's talking about that gate and the scroll, he's actually talking about all this this messaging. He says he's heard his whole life that he will die. He will stand before the pearly gates, so to speak. He'll be judged by God. The scroll will be unwritten. And he goes, you know what? I don't believe in any of that. 
I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I alone have the right to decide what is right and wrong for me. Right? I alone determine whether or not I'm saved or whether I'm not. Whether I'm living up to the standards I have or not. I have to determine these things. And so this is exactly the world that we live in, right? I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul, whether it's in an egregious way you believe that or a subtle way. But here's the thing. If we have that mindset, repentance is nonsense. It's absolutely nonsense. It makes no sense to somebody who thinks that way. Because if I decide what's right and wrong, why do I need to repent? That the only people who need to repent are people who just haven't figured out what's right for them yet. Martin Luther talks about this very idea and he says, when, when Jesus calls us to repent and, and people have no concept of what that even is, he's like, it's, it's like they are cows staring at a new gate, blinking at his words. What a vivid image. If I hear Jesus say, repent, I have no idea why I would even do that. I'm just like a cow staring at a new gate, blinking at his words. I, we don't get it. It's left to our natural thinking. How can we grasp Jesus' words here? that are essentially saying to us, you can't repent unless you realize you deserve to have a tower fall on you. Those are big statements. Tower falls on people, you go, well, same is true for you. Why not me? And he fleshes this out in the form of a parable in the first tree. Here in verses 6 through 9, uh, overarchingly, he's comparing the nation of Israel to a fruitless fig tree. A man planted a tree in his vineyard. He went one day seeking fruit from it, but he didn't find any. And he said to the vine dresser, I've been seeking fruit from this tree for three years. It's supposed to produce fruit every single year. It's been three. And so the landowner says to the vine dresser, let's cut it down. Why waste space in the garden? There's no fruit on this tree. But the gardener says, I'll work on it. Just give me one more year. Right? If it doesn't bear fruit, then... We'll cut it down. All right, so, so notice here, the owner hasn't seen fruit for three years. He, he's not being impatient at all. The owner is being wise. There's no fruit on the tree. The point of it is to bear fruit. Why do we have the tree? Right? This is intended to be an image of the people of God who aren't bearing fruit. This could definitely be Israel, but it also applies even to us as the people of God today. This is a warning from God, and we understand this very idea. This is why when things break, you don't hold on to them. Like if your pen runs out of ink and someone throws it in the trash, you throw it in the trash, someone doesn't go, hey, why did you throw that away? That's a good pen. You go, no, it doesn't have ink anymore. And you're like, well, still, hold on to it, right? You go, why? It doesn't do what I need it to do anymore, right? We do this with every single thing that we have. We get rid of it if it doesn't serve its purpose. So, so look here. This is what the image is, but what do you see here? Who is God in this passage? Well, you see his heart in the vine dresser. See his desire for patience. This is the image of Jesus, the one who has come to pursue God's people and the entire world for that matter. He's saying, wait, I'm going to do some work here. This is amazing. This is the patient heart of God on full display here. He's wanting us to bear fruit, to cultivate that. Well, what should the fruit look like? Well, the Bible says a lot about what the fruit in our lives is supposed to look like. But, but here, for time's sake, at the narrowest point of this, the fruit that he's looking for is this fruit of repentance. You can read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is a fruit that should be true of our lives. 
what does repent mean? Repent means to turn in a whole different direction. So if I'm driving to Seattle and I'm halfway there and all of a sudden someone says, you're supposed to be in L.A., right? I literally get off the freeway, turn around, and I go the opposite direction. That's an image of repentance. It's a complete 180-degree turn. And it's ch- it's not just changing direction in a vague sense. It's changing who our God is. It's, it's changing who it is that I'm, I'm following, who I'm listening to, who I'm obeying. Is it me or is it something else? It's refusing that and turning and trusting in God once again. It's a deliberate acknowledgement that I've been walking this way and I, I want to follow you, Jesus. And so, guys, if, if we're breathing today, this is the call, and it is because of the patience of God. If you are breathing, God has been so patient with you. So patient with you. God is so patient with us. I mean, listen to the words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. There's our word, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, this passage alone, especially the verses 1 through 5, it reminded me of Alexander Knoll in the 1500s at the height of a plague that was hitting London where about a quarter of the people living in London died from this plague. And he preached a sermon in the midst of that to his people. And on and on he repeated the phrase, the question, if not now, then when? If not now, then when? If we won't repent now, then when? If we're mourning death, when will we mourn our sin that caused this? Should we not mourn for sin when we're mourning death? If not now, then when? That's what Jesus is doing here. God has been extraordinarily patient with us, with me, with you. But there will come a time where his patience will come to an end. And we have to hear that. His patience is not meant for us to abuse it. His his patience is a means of grace for us to hear again. He's given us today that we might hear. We might repent and believe. Guys, this is a path to liberation, and that's where the next image comes in, in verses 10 through 21. We get to this mustard tree here at the end. Look in verse 10, what does it say? Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which which work ought to be done. Come on those days, be healed, and on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey away from the manger and lead it away to water? And not, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? 
It is like leaven that a woman took and, and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So here we see Jesus teaching on the Sabbath, as he often did. And in the crowd, that day there was a woman who was somehow influenced by a disabling spirit, an evil spirit. And it had weakened her for 18 years. She was bent over, not just with some bad posture or you know that kind of idea or hunchback sort of idea. She was like bent over, like really bent over. Could not straighten up for 18 long, horrible years. I mean, just think about what you were doing in 2004. That's 18 years. Some of you are like, I wasn't even born. 2000. You know, I wasn't even born then, right? So who knows what you were doing, right? So, uh, but for the rest of us, what were you doing in 2004? That's 18 years. But I also think we are meant here to kind of glance up at verse 4. Because we see 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. Look at all this imagery here. We see 18 in verse 4. There were 18 that were crushed by a tower. And think about what a tower is. A tower is strong, stable. It's upright. What happens? It collapses. It's bent over. Right? What happens here? This woman for 18 years... She's not very stable. She's not strong. She's weak. She is bent over. And she is made upright. What a beautiful image. But notice how this even happens. Look in verse 12. She doesn't see Jesus. We are told Jesus saw her. Jesus noticed her. Jesus initiates with her. So he calls her over and he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he lays his hands on her. And just as quick as that tower fell, she's made upright. Immediately she was made straight. Immediately the tower falls. Immediately she's made straight. As here we see the powerful, transforming work of Jesus. And what does it bring? What does the word Luke uses? It brings freedom. You notice that? Woman, you are healed. You can say that. You are free from your disability. This physical healing of this woman was a glimpse for all of us of what it will be like when you finally see Jesus face to face and you enter the new heavens and new earth. Any physical suffering that you've gone through, through faith in Christ, when you enter into that life with Him, any emotional suffering that you go through, when you enter into that new life with Him, upright. Right, you guys, one day there will be no more. Set free. Right, we'll be set free and transformed. But, like all of Jesus' miracles, because He doesn't heal everybody, this is, is really more so an outward picture of the freedom that Jesus brings, the inner freedom of what Jesus come to bring. We are transformed. See, that call from Jesus to repent or else you will likewise perish, it's not merely a warning, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to a whole new life. Because look what happens to her. She's made upright and what does she do? She glorifies God, it said. She is recognized that what has happened to her was from God. And she glorifies God, but not everyone does. 
the ruler of the synagogue's upset. He thinks it's inappropriate to do something like, like this on the Sabbath. But notice, he's the passive-aggressive type. He doesn't say anything to Jesus. He just looks at all the crowd while Jesus is there. And he says, there are six days where you can come here to be healed, but please don't come here on the Sabbath for that. But think about it. This woman has been coming here for 18 years. And this religious leader provided no healing. He provided no hope for her. So look at Jesus' response in verse 15. You can sort of see his righteous anger. And notice the freedom imagery again. He goes, you have your donkeys that are tied up at the manger. You set them free so they can go get some water. How much more should a daughter of Abraham, right? You think you're a son of Abraham. This is a daughter of Abraham. Think about the worth of her in comparison to an ox or a donkey. Right? Satan has bound her for 18 years. And through the touch of his hands and the uttering of some words, he's set her free to go and drink, right? See, the Sabbath was, was given to God's people for their good. It's so that they would be renewed. It's so that they would be refreshed. They would find true rest and true freedom on the Sabbath. I mean, what could be more Sabbath-like than this woman being healed in finding lasting Sabbath in Jesus. Right? This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus is calling us into. I mean, this is yet another story that continually shows us this. And we must pay attention. We really must pay attention. I mean, if you think about the annual product event for the company Apple, right? It happens every single September. I like Apple products, not that into it. I have friends who like mark this on their calendars and are really into it. And it's a little weird. But okay, it's this massive unveiling every single September of new products, right? And so the event shows you as a consumer, basically not just what Apple made that year, but what Apple is, right? It shows you that, what they exist to do, to create, who they are as an organization. I say this because it would be really confusing Right, if everyone who anxiously watched the event sees the lights go up on stage and all you see there is a person with a barbecue grill and a chef's hat on and they start talking about food, right, at an Apple event, right, you would be confused, right, because Apple isn't a food company. If you didn't know that, it sounds like it is, but it's not, okay? Right, the event points to what the company is all about, right, in the same exact way when Jesus says things, when Jesus does things, it's showing us what he is all about. It's showing us what he came to do. And so we need to see here that Jesus hates any form of religion that crushes those who need grace, who need help. Jesus brings grace for the broken. He lightens crushing loads. He doesn't add to them. So if your burdens are heavier since you've met Jesus, come and talk to me. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned you haven't met the real Jesus yet. He comes to bring rest. As a church, furthermore, if this is what Jesus is all about, do we notice those around us that are weighed down, that are wounded? Do we see them? Or are we only drawn to those who seem to have it all together? We think we have it all together, or at least more so than other people, and so maybe we just want to be around other people that seem to have it all together. But we need to pray for our church and for all the churches in our area that we wouldn't just notice, but that we would pursue those who are broken and weighed down in this life. 
Right? This is a whole different view on how you get free, isn't it? I don't set myself free. I get set free when I come to Jesus. When I respond to his call, I come over and I find rest. Because there's an immediate change in this woman. But it doesn't mean that real interchange isn't also happening right away. Right? This is exactly what Jesus does, you guys. But you and I might sit here tonight and we might go, well, I, I didn't have anything dramatic like that happen in my life. But that's exactly why we have this image of the tree. It's exactly why they have the image of the tree. Because look down, what does Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in their branches. I'm just curious, have you ever watched a tree grow? Have you ever seen a tree grow? Yeah? I mean, like, you're sitting there and you're just watching it. You're like, oh, there it goes. Have you ever seen that tree grow like that? Maybe in Narnia. I don't know. Right? Not here. Because what happens? Maybe a couple years go by and you go, oh, wow, the tree grew. You can't sit there and, like, watch a tree grow. But it grows, doesn't it? And here he says it's the kingdom of God. What's happening in you? It's like a mustard seed, a tiny seed that's placed in the garden, but over time it grows and grows and it becomes a substantial tree. So much so that birds begin to make nests in the branches, which is a powerful image because in the Old Testament, birds are often an image of the nations. So the kingdom of Jesus will be a place of rest, a place where people find their home, a place of security for people from all nations. That's what this image is. Praise God, because that's you and me. Well, what's required? What's required? Patience. Time. But in time, something large and lasting emerges. In fact, it becomes large enough that birds build their nests here. Well, what does this even say to us then about Jesus and his work? If he can make the woman upright like that, what does it say about the other kinds of work that you and I are often frustrated by? Well, it tells us at least that the kingdom of God most regularly looks small. It looks unimpressive. And that's exactly what he's trying to tell these people here. Because the beginning of this kingdom wasn't what people anticipated in his day. The Jewish people anticipated God's kingdom coming, but they had been waiting for the Messiah to come. And what they thought would happen when the Messiah came was not at all like what the Old Testament scriptures were telling them. Over time, they'd added their own ideas and meaning to it so that when the Messiah came, what they were looking for was someone who would be raised up and who would overthrow the Romans who occupied them. That he would liberate them physically. That he would reestablish Jerusalem, a nation of power, a nation of influence, so that they're looking for someone then with great and obvious power who would fight today and win the battles that they wanted him to win. And Jesus is saying, that's not what my kingdom is like. And that's why we get this final little parable about this leaven, this yeast. It's a tiny substance that is placed in the dough so that it will make the dough rise. It looks so small, it seems so unimportant, but over time, the yeast works its way into the entire lump of the dough. The leaven spreads its influence, though quietly and invisibly. This is telling you something about your faith. 
It's telling you something about Christianity. Christianity has a hidden power that comes through the gospel. It's growing, it's a growing kind of power, but not an explosive sort of power. Right? Yeast and seeds, they don't explode, do they? Right? But they, they ooze. Right? They, they break up, right? They work, they take time, but they are living power. Right? It's an organic sort of power. Not like a stick of dynamite kind of power. So instead, Jesus' kingdom here starts small like a seed. And we all know this. It was marked by him, a humble leader with no wealth to his name. Such a small beginning for his kingdom, it was. And then it was going to get even smaller because what would happen to this king, this Messiah, on the day he hung on a cross, all of his followers, if not just a few, scattered. Some even denied they ever knew him. And then onlookers said, well, he's the king of the Jews, apparently, but look at him. What an end for a so-called king. It would look like his kingdom was gone, but instead, on that day, the king was doing his most substantial work ever. Because through his death, his body, the seed would fall into the earth and die. But three days later would sprout up new life through his resurrection. And from his death and resurrection, what would he do? He would send forth his followers, a ragtag group of followers, not to overthrow the Roman government, but to change the world, to transform lives. This small group of people would begin to grow and they would go out and nations would be transformed. It started small, but it would grow and it would extend. And it grows so much that the kingdom now and forever, you guys, includes people from every tribe, language, and tongue in the world. And that we know some from every people group will join in this kingdom. That's the great promise. So Jesus is saying that his kingdom will look insignificant, but it will show itself to be the most significant. Guys, this is really important for us as we think about how we engage in the ministry of the gospel. There's a lot of different ways that we can try to measure success, right? but we, we, we tend to think that bigger and faster is always better. But bigger and faster isn't better according to Jesus. It's not the true mark that we're looking for. It doesn't also mean that small is better. Small can be really unhealthy too. But it's telling us that Jesus' kingdom, at many times it might not look like much is happening, but over time you wake up one day and you go, tree grew. Oh, the tree grew. It grew in a way that I can see. Maybe it grew in a church being planted in another place. It grew in a people group hearing the gospel for the first time and coming to faith. Or maybe it grew because you woke up one day and you're like, wow, I'm more free than I've ever been. What happened? So what can we hang our hat on? Well, we know, guys, that the things that truly last rarely come quickly. You know this. You just look out in your yard and what grows the fastest? The weeds do, right? Don't they? That's not what you're looking for, right? But what lasts? It's that tree. And so we want to think wisely about this then and how we do gospel ministry. When we pray and and support people like Virgil and Kelsey who we've helped send out to plant a church in northeast Portland, we don't want to discourage them or think that it's got to get big in a certain way at this amount of time. We go, no, we pray that that seed that they're sowing faithfully, it sprouts over time. We think about this when it comes to sending people out over the world. Governments cannot stop the gospel. 
I mean, we saw this when, when the gospel spread in China and places like Cuba, where there weren't many Christians at all, and all of a sudden there's millions of Christians in China. There's hundreds of churches in Cuba. So this gives us such a great hope as we see the gospel move forward in East County, as we love our neighbors and family and friends and coworkers and faithfully, hopefully, display the fruit of repentance before them while sowing the seed of the gospel. We might wonder at times, is anything happening? But we know it is. We know it is. This gives us hope as we plant churches, as we seek to see the gospel spread to people like who've never heard the gospel, who have no access to it. We pray for that to happen. And we stay the course and don't give up. So we know this seed will grow in the world. But guys, we must realize that this is how it will work in your own life too. I've, I've told you before, I mean, one of the most impressed things that I ever heard someone, uh, John Piper, say when they asked him, what makes you doubt God the most? He said, it's the slowness of my own sanctification. What he means, if you don't know what sanctification is, it means the slowness of me becoming more like Jesus. He doubted God because of it. But that's because it's like the kingdom of God is like a seed. So you might feel that way tonight. But I'm still here to ask you, are you free? Are you free tonight? We are really free because of Jesus. God comes and looks at us, and he finds fruit. He finds fruit. I've actually wondered how many of us are like my daughter, Isla. Uh, I thought back to when she, we transitioned her out of her crib. She was one of our only kids who didn't learn how to climb out of her crib. Um, and so it was wonderful, right? It was always so stressful. Um, but we finally transitioned her out of her kid into a toddler bed. And uh, as we did that, what was weird is when she was in her crib, she'd always wake up in the morning and call for us to come and get her. And as I transitioned her to her toddler bed, she could do whatever she wanted. But still, every single morning for a few weeks, she would yell for me to come and get her out of her bed. And I would often kneel down next to her, and I was like, you know, this is actually kind of nice, so I'm not stressed out about where you are in the house and if you're going to go and kill yourself, I don't know, like do something crazy. But at the same time, I would kneel down and I would tell her, like, you, you realize you're free, right? Like, like, you can just get out of bed if you want to. I, I've thought about that a lot this week because I think about that a lot in my own life. How many times Jesus has come and he's made us upright. He, he's loosened us and he's led us to the living water himself. And as he's done that, we look at him and we keep going back to our jail cells. We keep going back to the same old things. And that is why someone like Martin Luther said the whole of Christian life is one of repentance. It's not just something you do one time. We continually do it because we realize we keep going back. Are you really free tonight? Are you free? Jesus comes to untie us to set us free. And he's one that when you're set free by him, you will want to follow him. I think... I've told you this before a couple years ago maybe, but um, my favorite story about Abraham Lincoln is when he went to a slave auction and he was appalled at what he saw. And he saw a young woman up on the auction block and the bidding began. He was horrified by it and so he kept bidding and bidding and bidding and he bought her. He bought this woman. He went up and paid the auctioneer and then he went over to the woman that he just paid for as a slave and he said, you're free. And she goes, what's that supposed to mean? 
And she says, well, he goes, well, it means you're free. Right? And she goes, you mean I can do what I want to do? I can go where I want to go? And he said, yeah. And she said, well, I think I'll go with you. I think I'll go with you. And that's what it's like with Jesus, you guys. We can be free because this same pilot that put together the, the death of Galileans is the same pilot that would kill Jesus. The person who wasn't killed for offering a sacrifice, but was killed because he was the sacrifice. For in the days to come, Pilate would hand over Jesus to be killed. And Jesus, the truly innocent person, the only innocent person ever, the only one who could truly say, why do bad things happen to someone so innocent? The sinless Son of God would give himself on a cross. He would willingly die the death we deserve so that we could be, experience God's patience tonight so that we could repent and wouldn't die the death that we deserve. It was not a sudden tragedy. It was planned before the beginning of time, Scripture tells us. It was the plan for Jesus to be crushed, not by a tower, but by the just punishment of God for our sin, poured out on him so that any and all who repent and place their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior would not perish, but have everlasting life. God is so patient. He's come and untied us from our sin so that we could truly find rest in him. And now we know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So let's, let's turn to him. Let's trust him. And by his patient grace, may we bear fruit. Father, I pray tonight that as we consider your word and we consider these trees and we consider your patience, that you would untie us from the things that are enslaving us and you would set us free. God, that the seeds of the gospel would begin to grow more and more in our lives tonight, even when we can't see it. And ultimately, Lord, we would bear the fruit that you're looking for in our church, in our lives. Would you do the work that only you could do, Lord Jesus? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.